0: First, the bad news, which is that targeting just women with this canvassing campaign was not effective at improving women's turnout. So I think what these results show is that there's a way in which men are central to women's political participation.
1: Political parties mostly engage with men. Um, Aren't they doing the smart thing by not wasting resources in talking to women because they just don't control the resources?
0: What's important is that this can have real material and distributive implications for whose voices are heard, whose preferences and whose interests are represented.
1: Welcome to Unpacking Us, a podcast where we unpack the deepest questions faced by Pakistani society, politics and the economy. I'm your host, Asad Liaquat. Pakistan finds itself in an uncertain political situation once again. The PTI-led government that won the 2018 general election has been ousted, and the new PMLN-led government in the center is navigating the tail end of the electoral cycle. There's turmoil at the provincial level in Punjab as well, where both PTI and PMLN seem to be playing a round of musical chairs. Elections are due to be held in 2023, although there are calls for early elections and we may well find ourselves in the midst of national election campaigns fairly soon. All in all, there is a seemingly endless series of political drama unfolding in the country. Uh, If you follow this drama regularly, one view that you might hear is that if only we could eliminate interference in the political process, that if only voters were able to exercise their right to vote and political parties were free to contest elections then we would automatically have a free and fair democracy. Now, there is some truth in this sentiment, in that interference in the political process is, of course, harmful. But there is also a fundamental error in that, in this line of thinking, if there is no interference, the political process is automatically free and fair. That assumes that the biases and the inequities that are inherent in Pakistani society are not reflected in its political outcomes, that different segments of society are able to exercise their democratic rights freely, and that different groups do not enjoy privileges over the others. To examine whether this is true, there's perhaps no segmentation of society that is more central and more critical to focus on than gender. So in today's episode, we'll unpack whether men and women Have an equal say in Pakistani politics as voters? And if not, what can we do to get closer to equality? To start with, let's take a look at the gender gap in voting. By the gender gap, I simply mean the difference between how many men vote versus how many women vote. We have one of the largest gender gaps in voting in the world. In the 2018 election, the number of women who voted was 11 million less than the number of men who voted. That's an astoundingly high number. It's almost the same as the population of the entire city of Lahore. Imagine if everyone in Lahore was eligible to vote, but not a single person turned out to vote. It's hard to see how that wouldn't undermine the legitimacy of the entire national election. So we have a huge gender gap. What can we do to reduce it? How can we reach a state where women are able to exercise their democratic rights as voters on an equal footing with men? To help unpack this question, I'm going to bring in someone who's well on her way to becoming a global expert on gender in politics. Sarah Khan is an assistant professor of political science at Yale University, where she does research on, among other things, the barriers to women's political participation and representation. Sarah is also my co-author and my friend of nearly two decades, and I'm so glad we get to have this conversation today. We're going to talk about today some research that we did together, along with Ali Chima and Shandana Mohammed. We'll take you through our research journey and how we found what works to increase women's turnout in Pakistan, why our findings are surprising, in that the key to increasing women's turnout may lie not with the women themselves, but with the men in their households and why our findings, while actionable in some ways, may also be deeply problematic and concerning at the same time and whether we can resolve some of these conflicts. Sarah, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Asa. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So, Sarah, the first question that I want to ask you um, was the first question that was posed to me when I first presented this research during graduate school to a tough crowd of Harvard economists. Um, And that question was, why should we care about whether women vote at the same rates as men? And at the time, I thought the question was very obnoxious, uh, and that there was a self evident truth to it. Uh, But over time, I've come to take a more charitable reading of the question, which is, well, when we have so many questions related to The equality of women in this country, Uh, employment, violence against women, discrimination in nearly every aspect, why should we care about voting? Why is it important that women vote at the same rates as men?
0: Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's worth noting that the universal right to vote in democratic elections is a fairly recent phenomenon. So setting aside actual turnout rates, historically, that right had been restricted to certain groups. Um, Namely, property owning men. And so the expansion of suffrage to other classes, other races, other genders, follows explicit long and sometimes violent struggles for that right. In the case of Pakistan, by the time um, we gain independence, universal suffrage is already a global norm for electoral democracies. So the right to vote was not a legal question. But it's worth noting that the making of that global norm comes on the heels of long and difficult popular struggles. So why does exercising this legal right matter? There's a principled logic of equal participation. But to the extent that we believe in the theoretical promise of electoral democracy, which is that elections are the means by which citizens hold their representatives accountable, the exclusion of certain groups, like women, essentially amounts to their exclusion from this accountability bargain. What's important is that this can have real material and distributive implications for whose voices are heard, whose preferences, and whose interests are represented. And that brings us to the question of, do women have different interests from men? And this is as much a theoretical debate about whether women are a group or a class in the same way that other social groups are, but it's also an empirical one. And looking at the empirical answer to that question, um, surveys from around the world over time have shown that women do, in fact, hold different preferences over policies, public goods and services. One common finding, for instance, um, that holds true in the Pakistan context from work that I've done is that women uh, put a higher priority on water provision as a key service than do men. And men tend to prioritize infrastructure and roads more than women do. And if we think about it, this corresponds to the to the deep ways in which men and women's lives look very different Um, and the way in which they um, they divide household labor differently. When it comes to policy preferences, there's evidence from the United States that following the extension of the right to vote for women, there is also an expansion in the welfare state spending on health ed- healthcare and schooling went up. Divorce laws became liberalized in a way that benefited women. Um, in India, where the gender turnout gap has been steadily reducing, um, we see that politicians now specifically do address women in campaign promises and target them with election time handouts. Um, in Pakistan, women continue to be invisible from party campaigns. It's something that um, is apparent if we look at manifestos, if we look at the speeches that parties make, um, if we look at campaign promises, and women sense this invisibility too. Um, They explicitly talk about it when um, we ask them for about why it is that they're not interested in politics. So it bears out in those interactions that you have with women as citizens. So voting, exercising the equal right to vote may not guarantee that women's voices are heard or represented. But without that, politicians really have very little incentive to pay even um, lip service to women's concerns or their specific needs.
1: Turning to our research on what works to increase women's turnout in Lahore, we decided to focus the study on the role of men in potentially constraining women's turnout. Can you walk us through why we decided to do that and the theoretical motivation behind this decision?
0: Sure. In um, the lead up to 2018 elections, there was a lot of focus on instances where um, communities had placed informal bans through agreements between community leaders and party members to restrict all women in a particular locality for voting. And this is, of course, a violation of the equal right to vote. What these bans represent is an example of when women as individuals don't control their own decision to vote. And we we classify such a situation as part of a broader phenomenon called male gatekeeping. This is when men exercise control over women's right to participate and the decision is not a woman's alone. The collective ban now is a very extreme example, and it's one where elite actors or community leaders are exercising this gatekeeping power. But we can think about instances of male gatekeeping in all aspects of women's life, from really mundane decisions um, to consequential life choices. Um, You mentioned earlier that our study was focused in Lahore, which registers a large gender gap in voting. Now, Lahore doesn't have these kinds of collective bans. So what's going on? One possibility is that women aren't informed or motivated to vote. Um, Our hunch was that even if women are informed enough and motivated enough about voting, actually going to turn out might require them to have permission from men in their household and for men to actively enable their participation. So if we break down what the actual Practice of going to turn out to vote looks like in an urban in an urban space. It usually involves some form of transport to get to the polling station. Um, in Lahore, we found that um, the most common form of such transport to polls is uh, personal motorbikes. Now, excise data from twenty nineteen shows that ninety nine percent of motorbikes are owned by men. Um, And so in this way, um, men are in a position to exercise control over women's participation by controlling a resource that is necessary for women's participation.
1: Can you give us an example of how male gatekeeping can affect the ability of women to go out and vote?
0: Let's take the example of my own household um, and voting in the 2018 election in Pakistan. Um, my father, mother and I uh, got to the polling station in the car, which is owned by my father. My mother and I don't actually drive. And so on election day, we were in a sense dependent on him for our participation. Regardless of whether he was um, refusing or coercing us, there was still a way in which he was required to enable our participation. Now, in our case, my mother and I both have outside options. We both earn income, so we could call a taxi. We have social networks of other men and women who we could ask for a ride. So the implications of that gatekeeping power that my father exercised in this situation, perhaps less consequential. But we can think of um, the situation of most other women who don't participate in the labor force, don't earn their own income, and when living in urban areas are often cut off from family networks and don't have the opportunities to socialize outside the home to expand those networks. We can imagine how the lack of those outside options means that dependence on men and male gatekeeping can be pretty consequential. And for that reason, you know um, something that's reflected in um, our own lived experience as women, we chose to focus on this role that men play in women's participation.
1: I think this is a very powerful example of the central role that male gatekeeping plays in women's lives, including in their role as voters. Sarah, we did a fair amount of qualitative research to see how male gatekeeping plays out in the way parties campaign and whether the work of civil society organizations accounts for male gatekeeping, which led us to the kinds of interventions we wanted to test. Can you talk a bit about that?
0: So what we did was that in 2017, we followed a by-election campaign that was happening in NA-120 in Lahore. Um, for people who remember, this was um, an election where Kulsoon Nawaz of PMLN was running against Yasmin Rashid of PTI. So we have two strong female candidates. So this is a situation where we might expect women to be involved and interested in the election um however when we followed the election campaign what we noticed first was that in um an urban setting uh the mode of campaigning that parties rely on most is door to door campaigning which is quite different from rural settings where we have sort of a community based um approach so in this door to door campaigning what was happening was even though the candidates were women parties were going door to door but they were excluding women both in the content of what they were saying and in terms of actually speaking to them, um, now the partners that we worked with in this study are two civil society organisations, ORAT Foundation and South Asia Partnership PK, um, both of which have a long history of working on the question on questions of democratic participation, women's inclusion in politics and democracy. Their past work in elections had um, followed a model that looked entirely different from that of political parties, which is that they would convene um, community meetings um, that that included both motivational and informational content for women on why they should vote and how to do it. Now, uh, this, of course, very explicitly is targeted to women. But something that we were worried about was that this model also potentially could exclude women, in particular, those women who don't have the mobility or the required interest to show up to a community meeting in the first place. So when we were thinking about um, what kind of intervention we want to design and test, it was one that would um, follow the party model of door-to-door canvassing, but explicitly focus on women's participation, both in terms of directly targeting women and in terms of the message being about the importance of women's participation.
1: Based on this qualitative research, we had a strong hunch that a mobilization campaign that succeeds in increasing women's turnout should be door-to-door, and should have a strong component that focuses directly on the power of women's vote. We worked with our partners, Orit Foundation and South Asia Partnership Pakistan, to design this campaign. And we wanted to test whether it's enough to deliver this campaign to women, or whether in line with our theory of gatekeeping that Sara just talked about, it's also necessary to deliver this campaign to the men in these households. To test this, we used something that some of our listeners might be familiar with, which is something called a randomized experiment. This methodology originally comes from medical trials to test whether medical treatments work. In recent years, it's been adopted by economics and political science and other social sciences. It's a movement that has revolutionized how we do social science. So how does it work? If you want to see how an intervention or a treatment works to change some kind of behavior you can divide your sample of people randomly into two large groups. If these two random groups are large enough, then statistics will work its magic, and these two groups will be very, very similar to each other. You then deliver your intervention to people in one of these groups, let's call this group the treatment group, and not the other, let's call that the control group. If the people in the treatment group, on average... End up behaving differently from the control group. For example, if they end up voting at higher rates, then that means that your intervention worked. In our case, we selected a sample of two thousand five hundred households in seven national assembly constituencies of Lahore, and we randomly split these two thousand five hundred households into four groups. In one group, our partners delivered the door-to-door mobilisation campaign just to the women. In the second our male canvassers delivered it just to men. And in the third group, we had both male and female canvassers that talked to both the men and the women in each household separately to deliver the campaign. And then finally, we had a fourth group, which we did not mobilize at all. We could then compare the turnout of women in these four groups after the election to see which of these interventions worked best to increase women's turnout. We did this experiment right before the 2018 general election in Lahore. Sarah, what can you tell us about what we found?
0: Yeah, so what we found was, I think, quite surprising to a lot of people. Um, first, the bad news, which is that targeting just women with this canvassing campaign was Not effective at improving women's turnout. So, um, what that means is that in the households where there was no visit and in the households where only women received a visit, um, a a mobilizing visit from women canvassers, there's no difference in women's level of turnout between those two groups. Now, in the households where only men um, were targeted with this campaign about the importance of women's vote, the turnout of women in those households increased by 5.4 percentage points. In the households where both men and women received separate canvassing visits from male and female mobilizers, respectively, we see an 8 percentage point increase in um, women's turnout. Now, just to benchmark those, the size of those effects, the national gender gap in turnout in the 2018 election was 9.1 percentage points. So this 8 percentage point increase that we're able to um, achieve with um, targeting both men and women in the household is substantively large.
1: I also want to tell our listeners about how we actually found out whether the women in our sample households voted. If you've ever voted in Pakistan, you'll know that an election official marks your thumb with this indelible ink that doesn't go away for a few days. And that thumb impression is a sign that you've already voted in the election. So we sent our amazing team of surveyors, with the permission of the election commission, of course, to our sample households, and asked the women in these households for permission to see their thumbs, to record whether they voted or not. That's how we were able to compare women's turnout in the households in each group to see whether our campaign worked. Sarah, you told us that our campaign increased women's turnout the most, in the households where we mobilized both men and women, and secondly, in the households where we mobilized just the men, but did not increase turnout in the households where we mobilized just the women. What do these results tell us about men's role as gatekeepers?
0: Right. So I think what these results show is that there's a way in which men are central to women's political participation. And that if we leave men out or ignore their role, um, then, you know, we run the risk of um, not achieving the change that we would like to see. And so when we think about this, this result of turnout increasing in uh, the households where both men and women were targeted, it's interesting to, um, to think for a moment about what else changed besides turnout, right? And so aside from this exercise of going door to door and um, measuring turnout by looking at thumb ink marks, we also conducted follow-up surveys. So what we find in the households where both men and women received the canvassing visit is that both men and women report talking to each other about politics at higher rates. And both men and women report that men took enabling actions like waiting at the polling station for women to be done with voting, like organizing and providing transport for women to go and vote on polling day. Um, And so what this reveals to us about gatekeeping is that there are certain actions that men have to take to enable women's participation. And um, what we, it's, I, I, For a moment let's also talk about what we don't see right so we don't see a change in fundamental attitudes towards women voting it's important to note that at the outset both men and women's attitudes towards women's voting were quite favorable so more than 90 percent of both men and women thought it was appropriate for women to vote so what this intervention did is not change men's attitudes towards women's voting, which were already not restrictive to begin with, but rather it seems to have nudged them to take these enabling actions that may be necessary. Um, And so their control comes not from explicitly restricting women's participation, but from controlling the means of that participation through um, controlling resources like transport.
1: So if if men are the ones who control all the resources and they hold all of the decision making power, then doesn't that in some ways um, make the decisions of political parties to engage only with men very sensible? Um, you mentioned earlier that in your in your earlier work, you found that political parties mostly engage with men. Um, aren't they doing the smart thing by not wasting resources in talking to women because they just don't control the resources? Political parties want the votes of women. Um, maybe they should just be talking to the men and conserving their resources and not talking to the women. What What do you say to that idea?
0: So I think it's important to think about the implications of our findings, right? So our findings show what works to increase women's turnout under a very unequal status quo, where men hold that gatekeeping power. Um, Our intervention was conducted months before the election. Um, It's a 20 minute visit. It's not an intervention that was geared to change the fundamental power structure within households. But the bigger goal um, of, uh, you know, uh, of many of us, I think, um, and one that is shared by our civil society organization partners, is that this fundamentally equal status quo needs to change. That um, if we want to achieve change in the short term at the margins, then. Um we have to work within the status quo, but at the same time, we need to be taking actions that explicitly challenge that status quo. And that can't be done months before the election in a 20 minute intervention. That is you know sort of the longer uh, term processes that, um, for instance, our partner CSOs are involved in through their work in policy advocacy. And um, I think what parties are doing in terms of excluding women is not something that we uh, want to sanction with this intervention at all. Right. Rather, um, I think we, we see this in the way that we write up these results is in a sense, this, this is a depressing finding because what it reveals is um, that there's huge inequality where which um, which needs to be challenged through um, more structural long term change.
1: So that's a useful reminder to our listeners that change is always incremental. And that yes, while in the short run we should try out a different, you know, different set of things to improve um, the situation, whatever the question we may be interested in. Um, but that complements and does not substitute long-term structural change that must take place at the institutional level. Um, one more concern, Sarah, that could be raised with respect to our results is that simply the act of voting does not necessarily mean that people are actually exercising their autonomy. It does not necessarily mean that people are voting the way they would actually want to vote of their own free will. Um, One possibility could be that these women are voting at higher rates, but they're just voting for the person or the candidate or the party that the same men in their household tell them to vote for. Um, And is that a good outcome in that case? What do you think of that?
0: So I understand your question to be um, getting at whether we can interpret higher rates of turnout as truly this sort of um, women freely exercising their right to vote. And I'm going to say in short, no, right? Um, Because we still need to think about the process through which women decide who to vote for and to what extent that process is an equal and free and fair one. Um, as in, uh, as uh, you know, to to go back to our study specifically, um, we ask in our survey questions about um, voting autonomy, and we don't find that autonomy um, is decreased or negatively affected through this method of targeting men or encouraging men to take enabling actions, right? So we don't see an example of men then coercing women about um, who to vote for. But when we ask men and women who they talk to about politics, men overwhelmingly say other men. That includes family, other male family members, um, coworkers, um, neighbors, friends. And women overwhelmingly say, other men in their households, like spouses and brothers. And so even if men aren't exercising sort of a coercive power, the way that women's preferences and interests um, are being formed just looks very different because of the ways in which um, there is gender inequality in other parts of life. Um, So how would things look different if women were talking to other women? about politics, Um, would they vote differently? Would they come together to demand things of parties that they're not doing right now? So I think the promise that groups participating can lead to better representation of that group's interests really depends on whether people in those groups have um, the freedom to coalesce around those common interests, to interact with each other and to freely form preferences. And frankly, that is not the situation for most women in Pakistan. So equal levels of participation do not imply equal participation in substance.
1: This is linked to an idea that um, I think we frequently encountered in our field work, which is um, that politics is often considered a man's job. When we asked all these questions uh, in our surveys about whether um, whether women are expected to engage in politics by men or by women themselves. The the answers that we got from both men and women tended to overwhelmingly be um, indicating that it's not socially considered to be a woman's job to discuss politics or engage in politics or do do any kind of substantive action in that regard. Um, What do you think would take at a societal level in the long run to make it such that when we run these surveys, we find that women actually do talk to women a lot? frequently about politics, that um, that there are these collectives where women are free to engage and do engage uh, without coercion from, from men.
0: So it's interesting that this idea of politics being a man's job is certainly something that we pick up in um, our surveys in Pakistan, but it's something that's found in a lot of settings around the world that we might not think of as quite as patriarchal. Um, For instance, there's a study that I like a lot from the United States, which shows that um, children of school going age, so at that young an age, um, tend to have pretty gendered ideas about who a political leader looks like. So in this very creative study, um, children are asked to draw political leaders. And at a very young age, um, girls and boys start to overwhelmingly draw men. Um, And so, you know, these ideas are formed very early in life. And when we're intervening months before the election, um, we're coming in quite late. Right. And so I think for a longer term change, breaking those gender roles is something that happens over generations. It takes um, efforts at multiple levels, including in curriculum, Um, And there's also work from political science um, showing a relationship between women's labor force participation and their political preferences. And so when women participate in the labor force, their preferences and interests change. And there's a lot of debate about what exactly about working it is that produces that change. But one pathway is through the networks that women gain with other women um, to start discussing, not even necessarily politics, but just kind of the ways in which their lives might be unequal and how they can, they can demand greater accountability from uh, political actors. Another way is that they're, their earning income and having economic independence can lead to, you know, sort of a change in the content of their preferences. Uh, So Pakistan has a really low female labor force participation rate. And that's not something we should think of ever as unconnected from uh, this gender gap in political participation.
1: A question that we often get asked as researchers is that you spend a lot of time and resources in doing these research projects. How much of that is actually translated to something on the ground. So I know that you have recently been to Pakistan and you've been engaging with the Election Commission of Pakistan and the Earth Foundation and other organizations. How has the reception to these uh, results been?
0: Absolutely. So I think, first of all, it's just really important to acknowledge the work of a number of civil society organizations for simply highlighting the issue of the gender gap and in terms of our specific findings. So I think there's been a lot of interest in this descriptive finding about women's turnout being especially low in metropolitan cities. because I think there is this assumption about cities somehow being more gender progressive. And they might be on certain dimensions, but not on this one. And so just highlighting that metropolitan cities are an important site for mobilizing work, and they're contributing in a large way to the gender gap. So the gender gap in Lahore is larger than the gender gap in the rest of Punjab. And so if we're thinking about where to target um, given limited resources, um, the first thought is often not these metropolitan cities, but we're putting it on the table that it should be, perhaps. Um, the second thing is, I think, um, for the Election Commission, for instance, um, you know, highlighting the, the disconnect between women's registration which is also registration to vote in terms of having a CNIC, which is an issue they've been extremely focused on, done a lot of great work on, and actually turning out to vote and that those things might often not be correlated. So for instance, this gap that we find in turnout being the largest in metropolitan cities, we don't find that the gap in CNICs or registration is also the largest in metropolitan city. In terms of our civil society partners, so it's very interesting because um, in the past, their voter mobilization work has been um, exclusively targeted to women. Um, But that's not the case for their work on women's candidacy. But that learning had not in the same way been applied to the act of voting. So I think there is obviously a recognition and um, action around the fact that men are central to women's political participation Um, But what we hope these findings show is that even for something where men are not acting to restrict women's role, they can still act as gatekeepers by not actively enabling women's participation. And so the status quo is so unequal that for the simple act of going out of the House to vote, it's not standing for office. It's not about, you know, having working outside the home, it is really just we're talking about an action taken on one day, even that requires involving men. Um, And so I think sort of really focusing on what do the mechanics of the act of voting look like and how men have a role to play on the election day itself. I think really breaking down that action into its components and demonstrating um, men's role is hopefully um, a contribution that we hope that we've made to um, the organization's strategy.
1: So my my takeaway from your from your response is is that, or at least the feeling that I get while while listening to your response is largely the feeling that I think all of us had through most of running this project, which is you know there were there were many glimmers of hope and optimism in an otherwise bleak scenario. Um, at the end, one thing that um, I ask uh, my guests to, to do is to make some recommendations to our listeners about what they can do to learn more about the topic that we talked about or similar topics. Um, so what are some suggestions that we have for our listeners to learn more about um, uh, the gender gap in women's turnout or about gatekeeping in general?
0: Absolutely. So um, I think for those uh, listeners who, have, uh, who are oriented towards data and statistics, um, the fact that we have gender disaggregated data for the 2018 election at the polling station level is a market shift. And it's a shift that came about because in part of the advocacy of organizations to Um, have this data publicly available. So I encourage people to go to the website, download that data, look for patterns, because there's still a lot that we don't understand um, or know about the patterns of the gender gap, and for those who are not going to, you know, download the data themselves um, and and you know um, uh, and look at it, I would say that anytime there's a statistic about participation um, that you encounter in um, you know a media story or um, or in a conversation, to ask the follow up question about. What the um gender breakdown of that statistic is, because often asking that question reveals um gaps that um that can be kind of a motivation for um further inquiry or or action um another uh you know place that I want to point people to is that you know we, we've, we've focused a lot on men's role as gatekeepers um but you know as um as somebody who who studies gender, I think it's important to kind of step away from, you know, sort of um, assumptions about uh, binary assumptions about men and women. And so I would point to um, literature that looks at women in gatekeeping roles. And this can be uh, both positive and negative gatekeeping roles. So um, a book that I've been reading recently is um, by Rachel Brulé called Women, Power and Property in India. And um, this is about how women access um, their right to inheritance. And she looks at the role that elected officials at the local level play as gatekeepers of these rights. And what she shows is that when um, there is a quota or reservation for women in those um, in those elected positions um, and you have essentially female gatekeepers, Um, They help to enable women's access to this right. And that is um, a consequential outcome. And it's also one that is then threatening to men in households and in communities. Uh, There's also a um, economics paper by... um, by Anukriti and um and co-authors, uh, she has a great title called "The Curse of the Mummyji: The Influence of Mothers-in-Law on Women in India," and this looks at how um mothers-in-law in households play a restrictive role role for young married women's um uh, autonomy, especially in terms of family planning and the use of uh, and the use of contraception. Um, and so here's an example of, again, of women acting as gatekeepers and explicitly restricting other women's access. So this sort of phenomenon of gatekeeping, um, I think, is a very broad one. We can think about it not just in terms of political participation, but in terms of a number of mundane and consequential decisions that women make in their lives and that gatekeepers aren't necessarily men.
1: Sarah, thank you for being here. And I look forward to having you on the podcast again.
0: Thank you so much, Asad.
1: You can find some links to what we talked about in this episode and to the recommendations made by our guest today in the show notes of this episode or on unpackingus.com. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this episode. Also, I'd love to hear what you like and don't like about the show. And if you have any ideas for future episodes, you can email me at asad at I can't promise to respond to every email, but I do promise to read and think about every email. Thank you for listening.